February 9th, 1993, 112 Beacon Street, Boston. A desperate man stood on a ledge, ready to throw it all away. Professionally, he was in a rut. His career, at one point an aspect of his life he had been the most proud of, had grown stagnant, and his personal life was even worse. His wife was having an affair with one of her colleagues. She requested a separation, which left him alone to care for their two-year-old son. He had once considered this woman the candle that lit his way. Now she was gone, and her affair was the most painful and humiliating experience of his entire life. The weight of these traumatic experiences, compounded, pushed this man, once a pillar of his community, to the brink. News crews arrived, so did paramedics and emergency personnel, but no one was able to talk him down, not even his most cherished friends. His anguish led him to spend two hours staring down certain death. The Boston police had a professional they brought out to talk potential suicide victims off of ledges, but they could not reach him that day. Why? Because ironically, that man was the man on the ledge. And that man was Dr. Fraser W. Crane. Fraser did not throw his life away that fateful day in Boston. Cooler heads prevailed, and thankfully, the Boston Globe ran a story about his attempt instead of an obituary. Over time, Fraser took ownership of the demons that sent him to that ledge. He even used them to propel him to something new, something different, something more rewarding than he could have ever imagined. This podcast's goal is to examine all of this to look at the life he had, the life he almost threw away, and the life that awaited him on the other side. Now briefly, a little bit about myself. My name is Dr. Howard Lyon, Senior Chair of the History Department at New Haven College. I'm the best-selling author of several biographies, including The Performance of a Lifetime, the story of John Wilkes Booth. And, of course, Mrs. Mussolini. During my five happy years of marriage, I second-hand watched the TV show Frasier over and over again. I never understood the appeal of this enormously popular program. I found it buffoonish, ingenuous, brainless. But after my divorce, I found myself strangely pulled to it. It was... It was all very confusing. I still knew the show was beneath me, not funny at all, but an important part of me could finally understand Fraser Crane, man to man. I became obsessed. I watched all of Cheers, all of Fraser, the guest episode he did on Wings, even the Fraser Super Bowl commercial for Dr. Pepper. I was compelled. I never laughed once, but I was compelled. As a decorated biographer myself, I started to notice right away that Fraser's life story had yet to be told. Yes, we see bits and pieces, we spent almost 20 years watching him on our TVs, but what of his childhood? His awkward teenage years, his early career? As I watched episode after episode of Cheers and Fraser, as hours turned to days and days to weeks, as my precious 
Life slipped by, never to return. I wished that someone would write the definitive story of Fraser the Man. Here is a man, a decorated psychiatrist, an award-winning broadcaster, a man who dated almost 60 different women, which, very small compared to my numbers. Uh, Nevertheless, this is an interesting man. And consider this. He appeared on several TV comedies. He made America laugh. But his life wasn't funny. When you peel back the layers, even a little, you see that his life was really a tragedy. And yet, and yet, you all laughed. People laughed at me. I showed them, didn't I? Now that I'm in an unfortunate situation where I have nothing but free time and can't expand on this for legal reasons, I decided the person to write Fraser's biography would and should be me. And here we are. I'm thrilled to welcome you, one and all, to the Fraser Files. And maybe my ex-wife will hear this and see that I'm making an effort. Sheila, if you are listening, look at what I've done. This is what she wanted for me to take an interest. A man can change, Sheila. Fraser changed. Now look at how I've changed. Let's get to it. Fraser Crane's story is bigger than just one man. It's the story of a family. Fraser's entire life was shaped by his family. Their legacy was both a long shadow that fell over him and a banner he rallied under. Nothing was thicker than blood, not even his beloved Sherry. In order to understand the man, we need to first understand where and whom he came from. Let's start by talking about a bear. Not a real bear, certainly not, but a pewter bear, about a foot tall with a clock sculpted into its chest. It was crafted in Moscow for Alexander II of Russia. This pewter bear was a treasure of the Tsar, one that he handed down to his daughter Sonia Romanov. Sonia was a rebellious girl with a big heart, and both of those traits got her into trouble. At 18, she fell in love with a foreigner, an American, but tradition forbade any union between them. So she decided to throw everything away for love. She plotted a secret escape from the obligations of the royal family so she and her lover could elope in the United States. Under the cover of night, she made her way to a Moscow train station, relying on her scullery maid to smuggle money, clothing, and a pewter bear out of the palace. But it was not to be. Sonia would never receive these essential items to aid in her escape. The scullery maid, however, made off like a bandit, using the money and clothes she stole from Sonia to start a new life in America. She immigrated to New York, where she eventually found work as a woman of the night. It was there that she met a young man named Noah Crane. The two fell in love, and in 1882, they wed. Not much is known about Noah and his wife, which makes it very difficult for me, a professional biographer, to get the full picture of the Crane family. I do feel the writers could have been more forthcoming about this. People want to know. 
That's why I'm doing this podcast. I know what people want. Mrs. Mussolini sold 5 million copies, even though my editor said the subject matter was quote-unquote ghoulish. But you people slurped it up like pigs at the trough. The only thing we know for certain about Noah Crane and the maid is that they had at least one son. Not much is known about him, either. Surprise, surprise. But he, too, had at least one son. This one we know a little bit about. He liked to smoke, and he liked to travel. He had a long career as a police officer, and he married a woman who had a fondness for corncob pipes. Together, the two of them had three children, Vivian, Walter, and the future father of Fraser, Martin Crane. Before we continue, there are a few pieces of information that I must impart. First, there was no such royal as Sonia Romanoff. As a biographer, it hurt me to speak of her as though she were real. But, but, this is the show sneakily letting people know that it takes place in a fictional timeline, one where such a princess existed. A very clever move. One that most dunderheaded Americans wouldn't notice. I, of course, noticed right away. And next, before we talk about Martin Crane, we need to discuss general inconsistencies. Frasier was a television show, not a man. A man doesn't run for seasons. A man doesn't deal with network notes. A man has inconsistencies in his heart and soul. A TV show has inconsistencies because of lazy writers who didn't think that the watchful eyes of a Pulitzer-nominated biographer would be burning down on them. Jake Hogan, Heidi Perlman, Joe Keenan, et al. You thought no one would go poking under the hood. Well, I'm your goddamn worst enemy. All this to say, Marty's birth year is not presented as a constant. He was 63 in the 1994 episode Guess Who's Coming to Breakfast, making his birth year 1930. But he was 65 in the 1997 episode The Gift Horse, meaning he was born in 1932. When things like this come up, and they come up with some regularity, shame on you writers, I needed to make a choice. And my biographer's creed? Always make the most interesting choice. So, you're about to hear me make the most interesting choice. I stand by it. I'm proud of it. Someone had to do it. And that someone was clearly me. Marty Crane was born in 1932 in Seattle, Washington. His father was emotionally distant, the type of man who went his whole life without telling his son that he loved him. It's a pain many can relate to not just me. Marty had a brother, Walter. The two usually had an uneasy peace, but they had a knack for getting into dramatic feuds that could take years to resolve. Marty had a sister, Vivian, who was known as The Mouth. She was a gossip and managed to become the keeper of all the Crane family secrets. She also had a way with words, and was able to pepper just enough insults into a conversation to really cut someone deep. My mother, she... 
Um, I, I wanted to mention, we only hear about Aunt Vivian a few times, and she's never on screen. It's not clear whether or not she's Marty or Hester's sister, and we'll get to Hester in a moment, that's Fraser's mother. But considering that she's the keeper of the Crane family secrets, it just makes sense that she was a Crane. It'd be very strange if your sister-in-law was suddenly obsessed with your family. I myself barely remember the names of my former brothers-in-law, although one of them was a Nathan, like the hot dog restaurant. I always remembered his name. In time, Marty became a dashing young man who was quite fond of the ladies. He would personally oversee monthly mixers affectionately named Marty Parties, where single friends could count on finding a little romance. His own personal piece de resistance was a suede jacket that left his dates purring like kittens. Despite his freewheeling attitude towards dating, Marty had an uncompromising moral strictness, a very defined sense of right and wrong. Perhaps he learned this by watching his father serve as a Seattle police officer. However he came to it, it became one of the guiding principles of his life. And when his country needed him, Marty enthusiastically answered the call. On June 27, 1950, President Truman ordered the U.S. Air and Naval Forces to South Korea, starting America's involvement in the ongoing Korean conflict. Marty was only 17 years old, but so strong was his sense of duty that he managed to enlist, even as a minor. So now we have Marty participating in real historical events, even though his ancestor served a fictional Russian princess. As someone who typically only writes about the real world, this blurry line of fact and fiction is extremely annoying. Maybe they should have had him fight in a fictional war against, I don't know, uh, the whales. Whales deserved a war. I don't have a single kind word to say about the Welsh. They know what they did. Marty served under Lieutenant Franks, a man he soon came to see as a mentor. Franks took Marty under his wing and helped mold him into an exceptional soldier. His fellow platoon mates were a colorful bunch. Some of them were Hank, Bud Farrell, Stinky, Wolfman, and who could forget Boom Boom. Together they fought in foxholes, and their assignments took them to places like the South Korean county of Pyeongchang and the North Korean city of Panmunjom. During their time in Korea, Marty cheated death. And people, this is why I set his birth year as 1932 instead of 1930. It's more dramatic for a 17-year-old to sneakily join the army, hmm? Makes the Marty Crane character a little more interesting, doesn't it? It's a pretty good decision to make his birthday 1932, right? Didn't I tell you? I'm a great biographer. But there were moments of levity during this dark time. Marty, ever the ladies' man, seemed to charm the woman of Pyeongchang, and he found time to date, even during an international conflict. Despite all the danger, or maybe because of it, Marty and his platoon mates would remain friends their entire lives. 
I also want to note that I'm just a biographer here. I'm not advocating for Marty dating women while serving in Korea. I'm not saying it's appropriate that he did this. I wrote a biography about Andrew Jackson. Do you think I approved of everything he did? Yes, 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 I know a lot of people think that because of those long Facebook screeds, but those were taken out of context. I don't agree with everything he did. Maybe some of the things. Marty was discharged in 1952 as a decorated war hero, but even back home he was guided by his deep sense of duty. Likely inspired by his own father, Marty joined the Seattle Police Department. There he met Stan Wojdubikowski, a figure who looms large in the story of the Cranes. Stan's first impressive act was to help Marty get through the police academy. Marty's father, a secret sentimentalist, gave Marty his beloved bolo tie to commemorate the graduation. Stan also lent Marty the money he needed to buy his first car. These gestures were, of course, incredibly generous, but it would be his next favor that would forever change Marty's life. As one of his first assignments as a police officer, Marty was called to a crime scene, a homicide. As a chalk outline was made around the body, something caught Marty's eye. Through the flashing blue lights of the coroner's wagon, he spotted the silhouette of a young woman, and in that moment he realized that he was a goner. She approached the body, and Stan introduced them. This woman was Hester Rose Palmer, Ph.D. I told you that we would get to her. Hester Palmer was a brilliant, playful, and passionate woman who came from a totally different world than Marty. While Marty's ancestors came to America with some stolen money and a pewter bear, Hester's arrived on these shores with a personal fortune, allowing them to live in comfort. She had a sister, Louise, and a brother, Frank. Again, these two were barely mentioned on Fraser, and their place on the family tree is unclear. It's possible that they were dear family friends and not blood relatives, but again, I'm the only person around here who seems interested in making these calls. So I'm making a call. From now on, they're definitively Hester's siblings. Someone needs to draw some clear lines around all of this. Why not me? Could you do it? <laughs> I doubt it. Speaking of drawing some clear lines, I want to use this as an opportunity to close what I consider a pretty significant plot hole in Fraser. Many have asked, how can Fraser afford his lavish lifestyle on the salary of a non-syndicated radio host who only works four hours a day, four days a week? Some may think it's leftover money from his practice. Not so. It's very clear that Fraser's ex-wife took a lot of money in their divorce. So how is he set up in such a nice apartment, eating at the best restaurants and wearing the finest suits? One word. Inheritance. If Hester comes from money, then some of that could have fallen down into Fraser's lap. Hmm. Now, back to the story. Where Marty was a hands-on man of action, Hester was a woman of letters. She received a PhD in psychology and quickly began a prestigious career in research. She had built enough of a reputation that when the police department needed a psychological consultant, they gave her a call. 
Their meeting that night over the chalk outline of a murder victim left quite an impression on Hester as well, and the two soon began to date. Hester drove Marty crazy. She was always so upbeat, a stark contrast to the grim realities of his police work. They also shared a very passionate sex life, and once got caught naked in the back of Marty's squad car. Why are people so obsessed with making physical love in a car? A car is a tool, like a hammer or a meat cleaver. It's not for pleasure. Hmm? Sometimes people make me ill. Naked in a car. That's disgusting. Their courtship wasn't entirely smooth, however. They ran into a rough patch and broke up for a time. During this break, Marty pursued other women, but nothing took. There was only one Hester, and soon the two reconciled. All told, their whirlwind romance only lasted six months before notorious ladies' man Marty Crane knew he wanted to be with Hester forever. He was extremely nervous the night he proposed and got drunk, likely on his beloved Valentine beer. Valentine, by the way, was a real beer. The writers made up a princess, but not a beer? Ugh, lazy. Marty hopped up on booze, got down on his knee, summoned up all the courage he could, and asked Hester to marry him. She said no. Marty, undaunted, worked up the courage to ask again. To help the proposal move in a happier direction, he whipped up a batch of hot buttered rum, one of his specialties. This second time, Hester accepted. Maybe she was finally ready to say yes. Or maybe she was charmed by the hot cocktail. Or maybe it was because of a surprise neither of them were expecting. Hester was pregnant. An unplanned pregnancy between an unwed couple upended the strict social mores of mid-century America. So Marty and Hester did everything they could to minimize the stigma. Getting married was a good start. So in St. Bartholomew's Church, a very pregnant Hester waddled down the aisle to meet Marty. The minister could not contain his shock, and the other members of the Palmer family likely shared this disapproval. To the Cranes, a family line whose blood carried the mischievous memory of that Moscow scullery maid, this kind of thing probably seemed normal. When the pair said, I do, they began a commitment that would last for 35, mostly happy years. Marty had fought a war for his country. He had become a police officer. He had met and married the woman of his dreams and was soon going to be a father. He was only 20 years old. When I was 20, I was alone. I had a darkness in me. Some days, I think it never left. In the months before her first child's birth, 
Hester busied herself with work. She began an experiment with a pair of lab rats, named Fraser and Niles. She kept meticulous notes about them. She monitored what they ate, their behavior, and she became quite fond of the little creatures. It was with a heavy heart that she recorded the death of Fraser on April 14, 1953. The only consolation, in her words, was that she would soon give birth to her first child. Shortly thereafter, in Seattle, Washington, Fraser Crane was born, named after a dead rat. That's as good a place as any to end this first episode. Thank you for joining me. I look forward to exploring the rich world of the Crane family further with you. In our next episode, we will touch on the early days of Fraser and Niles Crane. This is Dr. Howard Lyon, and that's a wrap on this episode of The Fraser Files. Thank you for listening to The Fraser Files. The Fraser Files was researched, written, and performed by Stephen Winchell and developed for audio by Stephen Winchell and Ian Abramson. Directed by Lara Unterstall, with audio recording and production by Adam Goron. Music by Stephen Winchell and Takuya Yoshida. If you enjoyed our program, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. You can find us on social media at Fraser Files on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and Blue Sky. You can also send us an email at fraserfilespod at gmail.com. Thank you again for exploring the rich world of Fraser Crane with us.